Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. Just a warning that today's episode contains graphic content that some listeners might find upsetting. Voiceover statements from Jack and Sarah Corbett given to court were recorded by actors. Who is the real Molly Martins? On the surface, Molly Martins was the all-American girl. She was born into an affluent family of high achievers. Her father was in the FBI, and at one point, she was a model who appeared to have the world and men at her feet. Behind the public face, though, life was a big struggle. Molly was unhappy, longed for children, and prone to creating a fantasy life for herself. In 2008, she was engaged and just out of a medical rehabilitation centre in America when she flew to Ireland to take up work as an au pair for widower Jason Corbett's children. She became very attached to Jack and Sarah, but also to their father, and a romantic relationship quickly developed. They married, and Jason moved his family to the United States. It was there that Jason Corbett was battered to death by Molly and her father Tom in 2015. Over the past two weeks, their sentence hearing for voluntary manslaughter has heard claims that Jason was abusive, a bully and a drunk, all allegations that his family say are untrue. Your Honour, don't be fooled by this mask of civility of Molly Martins. There is a monster lurking underneath the exterior. That's what Jack Corbett told the court. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today on the Indo-Daily, I'm joined from America by the Irish Independent Southern correspondent Ralph Regal to ask who is the real Molly Martins? Ralph Regal, you have sat in that courtroom in America for the past two weeks. 
we have heard all sorts of claims and counterclaims from Molly Martins and her father, from the prosecutors. But really, the climax was what came last night with the statements from the children. Can you bring us inside the courtroom and what was happening there? Yeah, I can, Kevin. I mean, the defence lawyers and the prosecution lawyers were really only agreed on one thing, that Molly was all about the kids. That was what this really all boiled down to was the two children, Jack and Sarah. Um, they were the children of Jason Corbett, but Molly Martins wanted them. And yesterday, in extraordinary circumstances in courtroom number six of this new court complex, uh, the Davidson County Superior Court, it's in Lexington, North Carolina, those two children spoke their truth. I mean, it was raw, it was visceral, it was incredibly emotional. The first thing I want to say clearly is, I was a liar. From the age of four to ten years of age, I was taught how to lie and manipulate people by Molly Martins. During this time, I was abused by Molly Martins in every way you can imagine, and then some. My dad was taken from me almost nine years ago in a way no human should have to suffer through. Everyone I speak to about my life always says, oh, it must have been so hard to lose a parent at such a young age. I didn't just lose a parent. I lost my biggest supporter, my teacher, my protector, my hero. But most of all, I lost my best friend. Jack is 19 years old now. Sarah is 17 years old. Uh, They have been raised by Jason's sister, Tracy, and her husband, um, Dave, in Limerick after they won a custody battle within days of the brutal beating to death of Jason Corbett uh, in the early hours of August the 2nd, 2015. And yesterday, those two children delivered victim impact statements, which are amongst the most powerful that I've ever heard in a courtroom. And I'm covering court cases really since the 1980s. And within seconds of Jack starting to speak, Molly Martin started sobbing. She turned her chair slightly to the side so that she did not have to face uh, the children and Tracy Corbett, who delivered their victim impact statements in person. Um, Her sobs got louder at one point. Um, Midway through the proceedings, she was sobbing and moaning. Um, her father, who was sitting to her left, just kept staring straight ahead at the judge. Tom Martins just never locked locked his gaze off Judge David Hall. Uh, at one point, I looked and Molly Martins had leaned forward and had put her face straight down on the wooden table in front of her. And her shoulders were heaving with the sobs. Uh, a couple of minutes later, as as the evidence from Jack and Sarah really got very emotional when they started talking about what Molly Martins had done to them. Jack described her as a monster. Sarah had said that she had betrayed her in every possible fashion. I looked to my left. There were several members of the Martins family. They were sitting in the front left section of the public gallery of courtroom number six. They were sobbing. At one point, the judge had to interject and warn one member of the the extended Martins family that they had to calm themselves. And if they didn't, they'd have to leave the courtroom. Uh, Again, as it was proceeding, I heard sobs coming from behind me. And I looked around and actually one of the female American journalists who was covering the case was basically sobbing with emotion as well. That's literally the kind of of sense and atmosphere that was within the court as the two children, you know, really peeled back the layers of what they had endured at the hands of Molly Martins. While my friends are out having fun and going to parties, I'm in therapy learning how to live with the fact that I lied and helped their case. I was eight years old. Not once did I say I didn't love Molly Martins. 
But after her weaponizing my love for her and being able to express the abuse I endured because of her, I can stand here today and say I do not love Molly and she is not my mother. And Ralph, we know they're going back to jail, Molly and Tom, but it could be for as little as seven months. You might explain how that sentencing works. How long will they actually spend in jail? Yeah, it's unusual here, Kevin, how how uh, sentences are formulated here in the United States. They're actually formulated on the basis of months. So, you know, whereas we talk 15 years, it's 15 and a half years or whatever. In the United States, they talk in terms of months. So the sentence that Judge Hall imposed, he could have the minimum sentence he could have imposed was a simple probation order. And the maximum sentence he could have imposed was nine years uh, because he acknowledged that there were a number of mitigating factors that he had been asked to take into account and he ruled that they were applicable. So the sentence he imposed was actually 51 months to 74 months for both Tom Martins and his daughter Molly. Now that's basically, they've already served 44 months in custody. So both father and daughter will serve a minimum of seven months and they will qualify for the seven months on the basis of good behaviour. So they both could potentially walk free uh, next June. And in terms of the Corbett family, how do they feel about that sentence? Officially, they're disappointed. Kevin, I was talking to them yesterday and they issued a brief statement thanking the people of North Carolina for their support. Uh, appealing for privacy, saying it has been a very, very difficult and trying couple of weeks and months. It's worth remembering that this family have spent eight years campaigning for justice for Jason. So I think on the one hand, while the Corbett family are disappointed that the sentence wasn't at the higher end of the range, but I think privately they realised that there was a feeling amongst many people that there was a very, very strong possibility that Tom and Molly Martins could have walked free from court. So I think there's also a feeling of relief in the Corbett family that at least they have gone back to custody. Ralph, the last couple of weeks have really been about Molly Martins putting forward her version of events for what happened back then. You know, he'd come home from buying a new golf club for $500 and he'd open the fridge and there would be a case of raspberries and that would, that would be it. We can't afford raspberries and he would throw the raspberries on the floor. According to Molly, it's a side of Jason no one sees because to friends, he's the life of the party. The husky 260-pound Irishman always has a smile on his face at neighborhood gatherings. But in private... He would dictate what she should wear or what she should shop for or when she should be home or when she should or shouldn't leave or text her repeatedly or engage in just various forms of, you know, controlling behavior. Demand to see her phone, um, look at her computer history, that sort of thing. The headline on the Irish Independent today from your own copy is... Don't be fooled by Molly's mask, a monster lurks beneath. And that's a paraphrasing of what Jack Corbett said in court in his statement. Can you take us back and tell us who is the real Molly Martins? She was, and I think uh, she is obviously everyone who has seen the photographs. She's a very, very attractive lady. And um, she's, as you say, like your quintessential um, homecoming queen or all-American girl, blonde hair, um, very well-spoken. Um, she comes from a family that was described in court as, you know, focused on education. Molly, from what we can gather from her very early years, struggled, I think, with expectations. 
uh, and also struggled with mental health problems and with depression. If you look back on her life, she went to Clemson, which is one of the most prestigious universities here in the South. Uh, she didn't even finish her first semester. She bounced around a succession of what I suppose you could call menial jobs. She drifted through a number of different relationships. She was involved in one relationship with a man called Keith McGinn when she suffered another bout of mental health difficulties. And she was eventually admitted to a psychiatric facility in Georgia. And what's absolutely incredible is within a couple of weeks of her being released from that facility, and without even telling the man that she was engaged to here in the United States, she traveled to Ireland to try and take up a job as nanny looking after the two children of Jason Corbett. And to give you a little pen picture of Molly Martins, what the prosecution described as her complicated relationship with the truth, um, Molly almost lives in an alternative reality in terms of the way she portrays herself. For instance, when she was in Clemson, she had a college roommate and she told her college roommate that she had a younger sister who had died of leukemia. Molly had a photograph on her bedside table of a young girl. Uh, but there was something about the story just didn't ring true with the roommate. And when Molly was absent one day, the roommate was examining the photograph and whatever caused her to open it, she opened the photograph and realized that the image of this girl that Molly had portrayed as a younger sister was actually a stock image. It's the kind of image you get when you buy a frame for a photograph. And um, she lied about being a foster parent, which is important because she had told Jason Corbett when she came to Ireland to look after his two young children, that she was the editor of an Irish magazine so that she could become the leader of a book club here in Davidson County. Um, so many other things that she would lie about. The, the 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 prosecution point that this is a person who basically had a terrible history of falsehoods, lies, half-truths, and deceit. And Alan Martin, the assistant district attorney for, for Davidson County, he pointed out to the judge that this is a person who is very, very practiced at deceit. All I have ever been is a piece on her chessboard. She taught me how to shoplift, how to vomit, how to be the most convincing liar. I thought Molly loved me, but I was just her entertainment. Someone who would do anything she said and be like a doll she could dress up. When I was five years old, Molly Martins began her mind games. What kind of mother tells a five-year-old that her father killed her birth mother? How long, Ralph, did she spend in Ireland before her and Jason became a couple? One of the most extraordinary things, Kevin, about this is, is you know, the great what-ifs in life. Molly Martins flew into Shannon Airport to try and take up a job as a nanny for, for Jason Corbett's two children. But she did so on the basis of a one-way ticket. And what very few people realize is the guardie realized this, questioned her, and sent her back. So she was actually sent back to the United States. And if she had stayed there, we wouldn't be talking about this most appalling tragedy today. Unfortunately, she bought a return ticket she flew a couple of days later into Dublin Airport. Then she travelled to Limerick. And of course, she began working for Mr. Corbett in Ireland in 2008. Within a couple of months, they had commenced a relationship. And Jason and Molly married in June 2011 at a very elaborate ceremony, which was paid for by Mr. Corbett. One of the suggestions put forward during the hearing over the last couple of weeks was this idea that Jason Corbett was somehow tight or controlling around money. But 
there is evidence to the contrary that actually he was providing money paid for the wedding and other things for the family. Oh, very much so. I think um, the family, in particular Tracy Corbett Lynch, a couple of years ago predicted when this whole appeal process started, she said that, look, you know, they've taken Jason's life. Now they're going to try and take his good name and his reputation. And that's very much what has happened over the last couple of years. And in particular, in the last fortnight, um, Jason Corbett was portrayed as a bully as a person with an anger management problem, as a man who subjected his wife and children to a terrifying campaign of domestic abuse, uh, of a person who seemed very unhappy with his lot in life. And most extraordinary of all, a person who was exceptionally um, tight with money that he would give out to Molly about her spending money on fruit or leaving a light bulb on in the house. And of course, all of that runs absolutely contrary to what in reality happened. Jason had an abundant amount of personality and he was very, very, he cared. Um, he was very compassionate. Sometimes that's like a missing link with some of your coworkers and especially managers, not all of them obviously, but Jason had just a, he had a, a special touch about really, really being compassionate, really, really caring. Do we know how the two families felt about their relationship, the Corbett family and uh, the Martins family, Molly's parents? Yeah, I think the Corbett family were very wary. Initially, I think the feeling I got is that they were very happy for Jason, that he was happy, that here was a man that was devastated by the death of the love of his life. Um, To give you a portrait of the man, he, he was so obsessed by his wife's death that at his lunch break in Limerick, he worked in a packaging um, plant. And in fairness to Mr. Corbett, he started on the shop floor. He was just a general operative, but worked really hard, went to night courses, bettered himself, became a manager, and ultimately ended up running his own plant for NPS, which is now Restrock here in North Carolina. But he was so devastated by his wife's death that at lunchtime, he would travel to Mungret Cemetery, where she's buried. He would read aloud from the local papers to her headstone to fill to keep her up to date with the news. He would never miss an anniversary, a birthday, a Christmas, a St. Valentine's Day without calling to the grave and putting a card on the headstone. He would write poetry and read them out to his beloved mags. And he seemed to be very much that type of man towards Molly Martins as well, although you wouldn't think so in the evidence that was given over the last two weeks. But the Corbett family themselves, while they were initially happy that he had found happiness, I think they became increasingly concerned about the type of person that Molly Martins was. They became aware of her exaggerations, her lies. And unfortunately, none of them had the full jigsaw. Everybody had a piece of the jigsaw, which made them wary of Molly Martins. But none of them were able to put the full jigsaw together to realize, well, this is the type of woman we need to get him away from from her. Your Honor, don't be fooled by this mask of civility of Molly Martins. There is a monster lurking underneath the exterior. She systematically broke me down and drip-fed me untruths. I want to be clear, I had never witnessed my dad hit Molly Martins, ever. I am not under duress now. I want you to look at me standing here today and know the truth. I think the one of the people who did was Jason's best friend, Paul Dillon. And again, he's been a remarkable friend to Jason and his family over the years. And Mr. Dillon has been here for the entire fortnight to support the family. And Molly never liked him because Molly, I think, saw him as a threat. 
she didn't like the relationship that, that, that Paul and Jason were so friendly and they talked so much about each other's lives. So she did her best to distance him from Mr. Dillon. But at the wedding in Tennessee, Mr. Dillon, the night before the wedding, he had heard one of the bridesmaids talking and saying how wonderful it was and how romantic it was that Molly was look, was fulfilling her friend Mag's wish. And he said, what are, you, what are you talking about? And the bridesmaid had said she was told by Molly that she was pen pals with Mags and that Mags had be- begged her, if anything ever happens to me, please look after my children and Jason. But of course, Molly Martins never knew Mags. They weren't pen pals. She had never met her. So this was another one of these fabrications. But it involved Mr. Corbett's first wife. And Mr. Dillon was so concerned. He wanted to bring that to his attention before the wedding. And he actually begged him. He said to him on the day of the wedding, he said, look, it's not too late to walk away. Don't go through with this. But Mr. Corbett told him, look, my children have already lost one mother. I can't have them lose a second mother figure. So from that point on, I think the Corbett family knew they were very wary of Molly Martins, certainly talking to the people within the family that were closest to Jason. They feel that she made deliberate attempts to distance him from the family, to take him away from his support network. Alan Martins, the assistant district attorney, said Molly had a plan. Molly's plan was coming to fruition. She would marry Jason Corbett, she would divorce Jason Corbett, and she would engineer a domestic situation where she would get emergency custody and she would take his children. I think it's clear, Ralph, from what we heard over the last couple of weeks that we'll never know the the, the full version or truth of what happened because we'll never get Jason Corbett's side of this story. But it does seem clear that by the time he was killed in August 2015, things were not good within the marriage. Did Judge Hall give any weight to that in his judgment or did he talk about some of the things that he had been told or the way the marriage was described by Molly in his summing up of the case? Not really. I mean, what he did say um, is that he that he had used all of his experience. He said, ideally, cases like this are all about a search for the truth. But he said pointedly, in this case, I don't know the truth. He said, I've tried, I've searched, I've strained every fiber, he said, of my experience and my skill to discover what happened in the bedroom in the early hours of August the 2nd, 2015. But he said, despite all of that, I've listened to evidence, I've read reports, I don't know what happened. He said there were three people in that the bedroom that night. They are the only three people who knew what happened. One of those is dead. The one thing he did do is he focused very forensically on the major holes and the major contradictions in the Martin story. And it was interesting because those contradictions didn't really feature very highly in this case. But what he said was, firstly, the extraordinary contrast in injuries. Jason Corbett was taken out of that bedroom on a stretcher with at least 12 massive blows to his head with a metal Louisville slugger baseball bat and a heavy concrete paver. The injuries were so catastrophic and devastating that Dr. Craig Nelson, the pathologist here in North Carolina, he said that when he was preparing the body for the post-mortem examination on the medical table, pieces of the skull were actually falling out onto the table. His body was found blood-soaked and naked on the carpet of the master bedroom. There was blood on the walls. There was blood on the carpet. There was blood on the baseball bat. There was blood on the, on the paver. There was even blood on the ceiling and the furniture. In contrast to that, Tom and Molly Martins 
as he said, these folk, the judge said, these folks were basically uninjured. Now, Molly Martins made a major claim about having a small fingernail dig on her neck, but that was not noted by paramedics at the scene. They'd no bruises, they'd no scratches, they'd no major injuries. In fact, the judge noted, and it was quite interesting to hear him note that, that Molly Martins was wearing a very fine filigree bracelet. She w- and by her own account, she was wearing that bracelet all the way through what both Tom and Molly Martins described as a life and death struggle. I don't know what precisely woke me up, but what I heard were loud voices and uh, kind of, uh, like thumping. Something bad was going on. So I grabbed that Little League baseball bat and I ran upstairs. Were you yelling at him? Were you guys screaming at each other? No, I wasn't, I wasn't yelling. No, he wanted to shut me up, so he covered my mouth and then he started choking me. But at some point, when he stopped, I screamed. And then uh, he started again. And the next thing, the next thing I remember is my dad standing in the doorway. Tom Martins claimed he came into the bedroom armed with the baseball bat to confront Jason Corbett, who was strangling or holding his daughter by the neck and threatening to kill her. But that bracelet throughout this incredible life and death struggle, according to the Martins, it wasn't dented, it wasn't torn, it wasn't damaged in any way at all. And it was seen on Molly Martin's hands in the crime scene photographs after the police had called to the scene. He also noted that there was no rips or no tears to Molly Martin's pyjamas or to Tom Martin's um t-shirt or boxer shorts. He even said even the elastic on the garments wasn't strained. And yet these two people had said that they were involved in a, in a fight for their very survival. The other major point that he noted, and again, this was something that had not featured in the original 2017 trial, is that the two children were asleep in the bedrooms upstairs. But there was one other person who was in the house that night, and that was Tom Martin's wife, Sharon. Now, what we had not heard in the original um, 2017 hearing was Sharon Martin's version of events. Now, Sharon Martin's gave a statement to a police officer where she said, yes, she was awoken to the sound of the same thuds and screams. She saw Tom leaving the bedroom, but then she fell back to sleep and she never left the bedroom. And the first inkling she had that something was wrong was when there was a knock on the door. There was a police officer outside. So here you have a mother who hears her daughter screaming in the bedroom upstairs, fears she's involved in a violent relationship. Her husband leaves the bedroom armed with a baseball bat and does not come back. And this woman goes to sleep. And Judge Hall said that Tom Martins had a very, he'd spent his entire career in law enforcement. He was a supervisor within the Tennessee office of the FBI. He was involved in a serious crime squad. He worked with local police enforcement agencies. And Judge Hall said, here's a very experienced law enforcement officer. Rookies are taught if you're going to a scene that involves violence or a confrontation, the very first thing you do is you call for backup. And he said, Tom Martins left that bedroom he didn't ring 911. His wife didn't ring 911. And no, his wife didn't follow him upstairs to see was he all right. The first call to 911 was made when Jason Corbett was lying dead or dying on the floor. Davidson County 911, what is the address of your emergency? Um, my name is Tom Martins. I'm at 160 Panther Creek Court. And we need help. Okay. What's uh, going on there? My, my 
our daughter's husband, um, my son-in-law, um, got in a fight with my daughter. I intervened, and I, I think um, he's in bad shape. We need help. Okay, what do you mean he's in bad shape? He's hurt? He's bleeding all over, and I, I may have killed him. Finally, Ralph, is there a difference between the way Molly Martins is being portrayed in the Irish media, in your own reports and elsewhere here at home, and the way the American media have viewed her? Um, I think that that's a complex and difficult question, Kevin. I would think that there are some elements of the US media portray her in the manner that the Irish media have portrayed her. I think we have tried to be fair. We have listed all of the material that the defence teams have said um, and outlined. But I think it, we have this inherent Irish bias. So I suppose we're probably writing it from an Irish perspective, whether we know it or not. And I think the American media probably do that a little bit as well. Um, certainly what has generated a lot of headlines here was the material about domestic abuse, because I suppose in America at the moment, anything to do with domestic abuse and, and the abuse of, of, of women is, is very high profile. It's very much within the news. So that element of the case, I think, has generated a lot of headlines here, particularly the evidence that came from a lot of Molly's friends about the fact that it was an abusive relationship and some of their concerns about Jason. Uh, again, a lot of that evidence is up for debate on the basis that the prosecution pointed out that the Davidson County police officers, when they were investigating this case, they took 50 statements. Only five of those statements were subsequently changed. And the five statements that were changed were changed by people who came to court in the last week and a half to give evidence on Molly Martin's behalf and to talk about the domestic abuse that she had been suffering at the hands of her Irish husband. I think it's also worth noting that Molly Martin's in her very first statement to the police, she was absolutely adamant that no one else knew about the domestic violence or domestic abuse that she was allegedly suffering at the hands of Mr. Corbett. And yet several of her friends came into court and said, oh no, she had confided that abuse to me. And of course, the two children in their victim impact statements yesterday said Molly Martins had taught them to lie. She had frightened them into the fact that they would leave the United States against their wishes, that they would leave their friends, their family, their homes, everything that they knew. My words were weaponized to help Molly and Tom Martins get away with killing my dad. My dad deserved the world. He deserved to grow old and feel love from his family and get to see his kids make him proud. But that was taken from him. And remember, these two children had just been orphaned. They had, at the ages of 10 and 8, they had lost both their parents and they were being told by their stepmother they were going to lose everything that they knew and loved and cared about and would go back effectively to a strange country. They had lived in Ireland, but they obviously had very little memories of it. And she used that fear, according to the two children in their victim impact statements, to make them lie. Jack he actually opened his victim impact by saying, by saying, you could have heard a pin drop in court when he said this. I'm a liar, but I was made a liar by Molly Martins. Ralph Regal, thank you very much. Your Honour, you know my dad as the deceased, but he had a name. It was Jason. He had blue eyes. He worked really hard. He was a good golfer. He was my baseball coach. He was my soccer coach. He was my biggest supporter. He tucked me into bed at night. He made me laugh. He made me feel loved and secure. But most importantly, he was just my dad. 
Jason Corbett was my dad. My thanks to Ralph Regal, who has been covering that case for the past two weeks in the United States. And you can read more of Ralph's coverage in the coming days in The Irish Independent. If you'd like to hear more about this case, we've linked to some of our previous episodes in the show notes. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by D. Reddy, researched by Dave Hanratty, with sound by John Smith. Voiceovers were by Ryan Nugent and Chloe McPolan. Archive clips were from RTE News, ABC News, ABC 2020, Fox 8 News, CNBC, RTE Morning Ireland, The Late Late Show, and The Irish Independent. If you have been affected by this episode, you can get a list of helplines by searching Someone to Talk To on the Irish Independent website. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow, and leave us a review. And if you would like... Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.